Blog Talk Radio. At 100 plus years old, Hakone Gardens is a national trust and one of the oldest estate and gardens in the Western Hemisphere. Oral history has really been very, very important because it wasn't, a lot of this history was not written down. We really needed descendant voices. The concept of chocolate travel is starting to catch on, thanks in large part to Doreen Pendergrass. When I started this uh, six and a half years ago, um, nobody was really talking too much about chocolate travel or chocolate tourism. We will tour California's winemaking regions and learn about some earth-friendly wine-growing practices with Allison Jordan. And Lori Lansbury will tell us why there is much more to Lansing, Michigan, than Michigan State University. It's got the big city amenities and the small town hospitality and charm. Join us as we celebrate the centennial of the Hakone Estate and Gardens, pair chocolate with sustainable wines, and explore Michigan's dynamic state capital on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We'll shine a destination spotlight on the Dominican Republic in Cabo San Lucas from the floor of the Adventure Travel Show. We will also explore the world of chocolate with travel writer and chocolate tour publisher Doreen Pengrass. Also coming up on World Footprints, we will taste some sustainable wines from California and we'll enjoy culture, the arts, shopping, and endless dining options in Lansing, Michigan. Hakone Estate and Gardens in Saratoga, California, is one of the oldest Japanese estate and gardens in the Western Hemisphere. In honor of its centennial, Hakone is celebrating its beginning and endurance with multi-year events and activities. Hakone Foundation board member and historian Connie Young-Yu shares the richness and history of this oasis that sits on the edge of Silicon Valley. We're celebrating Hakone's centennial over three years, and we began... Uh, last year, 2015, for the 100th anniversary of when Hakone's, the idea of Hakone came about and the Isabel Stein started planning Hakone. Uh, Isabel Stein and her husband Oliver were San Franciscans who were involved with the Pan Pacific International Exposition. And it was a huge world fair. She was a, a developer. She was a patron of the arts. Isabel was a founder of the San Francisco Opera, and she became so enthralled with Japanese culture by experiencing it through the pavilion, the J- Japan Pavilion at the Pan Pacific Exposition. And um, she loved the, the, the creation of the gardens. And this is in San Francisco, in the marina area. There are many pavilions. But the Japanese pavilion was very, very uh, spectacular. She loved uh, the gardens and she loved the creation of the architecture, you know, the pavilions. And she said, you know, to her husband, I would like to have my own private Japanese country estate. And uh, that year, 1915, she and Oliver purchased the 15-plus acres of of hillside, beautiful hillside uh, acreage in uh, Saratoga, California, the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Hakone actually has some plantings and some structures from the Pan Pacific Exposition. Then in January 1915, she went to uh, Japan with her, her young son to look into historic gardens, historic Japanese gardens, and she became particularly enthralled with the Fuji Hakone National Park that was in, in Japan. And she, it was just so striking to her. That, and, I, and we believe, you know, that's where she got some of the designs, some of the ideas. And uh, she brought back items to put in her estate, you know, some of the artifacts and furniture. 
And she commissioned um, one of uh, Japan's leading architects and, la and landscape uh, artists to um, come design her, her estate in Saratoga. Isabel Stein developed an emotional connection to Japan, and Connie shares why Eastern designs had such a strong effect on her. Japanese gardens are just have such a, a striking um, design and also simplicity. The plantings were just very, very appealing to her. Uh, the bamboo and the maple, the maple trees and some of the shrubbery. But the architecture, you know, I think uh, at that time there was, a, there was an interest in, in Japanese architecture. If you see some of the structures <laughs> that we have at Hakone, you will understand why somebody who had never, you know, experienced Japan would come in and, and say, wow, that is so spectacular. I love it. It's, it's, it fits in the landscape. The buildings are, are beautiful in simplicity. Mm. And the way they are built, for instance, they're not built with nails and, and hardware. It's working with the pieces of wood and design, of course, the, the, showsy, the showsy screens. The fact that there's no hard furniture. There's, there's beautiful textures of, of textiles that, that are used for adornment. The sad thing was that in 1918, just when, you know, Hakone was becoming established, her husband died of a strep infection. It was a very tragic, and he had these plans to, to develop the marina district. But Isabel Stein continued with her dream of the, the country estate. She had three children, three young children. She loved dressing them up in Japanese clothing. She continued to have cultural events at Hakone. All this in the setting with the beautiful moon bridge and the, the beautiful pond and um, the wisteria arbor and, you know, the, the, the upper house uh, and the lower house, all these. This is a gorgeous setting. The Steins enjoyed entertaining friends at their Hakone Estate and Gardens in Saratoga, California. Isabel Stein was a philanthropist and patron of the arts, and she brought the first West Coast performance of Puccini's Madame Butterfly to Hakone Gardens in 1923. The Stein family used the estate as both a weekend retreat and summer home, even though Hakone was 45 miles away from their home in San Francisco. In the early 1900s, that distance presented quite a trek. The distance from San Francisco, Oliver Stein's death in 1918, and the high maintenance of Hakone may be what led Isabel to sell her Japanese estate to Major Charles Lee Tilden. His family owned it until uh, 61. He passed away in 19. 50, but his heirs kept it going, and Charles Lee Tilden was um, a financier, a lawyer, and he was the, um, the, one of the founders of the East Bay Regional Park System that's in Berkeley, and Tilden Park is named after him. So here's a man who loved you know, establishing public parks, who purchased this very, very private, beautiful, exquisite small for his, you know, considering his, the land he owned, Japanese garden for his, um, you know, personal use, for a private retreat for his family. But he is the one who enhanced it uh, greatly. The theme of this year's centennial is the Mond, which is the main gate that Charles uh, Tilden built. And what Charles Tilden did was, uh, for Hakone, was to hire a wonderful gardener who was, um, let's say, a, a self-trained um, architectural landscape artist named James Sasaki. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick with my wife, Tanya, and we are talking to Connie Young-Yu about the Hakone Estate and Gardens in Saratoga, California. James Sasaki lived at Hakone with his family, in a, um, uh, the, the caretaker's home, and he lived there for nearly 30 years, and he was there every day tending the gardens, uh, developing, you know, pathways and, and landscape areas and, and just making it ever more authentic, ever more um, beautiful. Interestingly enough, you know, James Sasaki and his family were at Hakone for 30 years, and they except for three years 
during the World War II years, and they were interned in relocation camp. And they returned uh, in 1945 and continued uh, their life there. So that's, a, that's an interesting thing because, you know, this is a Japanese garden in California. You know, we talk about it being a beautiful, exquisite, authentic Japanese garden. It is authentic in its design, its plantings, but, you know, there's an oak tree there, a beautiful oak tree, you know, that's not, and there are the climate is California. So this is what makes it very unique. We call it the jewel of the valley, the jewel of Santa Clara Valley. Over the decades, Hakone Estate and Gardens changed ownership several times. Fortunately for Hakone, each new owner remained true to the Estate and Gardens' original design. Connie helps to connect the dots between the owners and even her family's Hakone legacy. And my involvement with Hakone is that I'm, a, I'm the daughter of one of the uh, owners of Hakone after the Tilden um, era in uh, 1961 uh, to 1966, uh, because it was uh, it was very very expensive to maintain. They wanted to keep it intact. They did not want um, to sell it to developers. They did not want it subdivided. They approached the city of Saratoga and asked the city to buy the gardens. This year we're selling celebrating the 50th anniversary of uh, the city of Saratoga owning Hakone. Even though her family no longer owns Hakone. Connie remains involved with the estate and gardens, and she is committed to keeping its history alive. In 2007, I came on the board. I was very, very happy to be invited to be on the board. And I'm a historian. I wanted to be involved with the history and to add this historical perspective to the gardens because um, I think that, that history en enhances the site and the enjoyment of the site because it's a wonderful story. The beginning with the Pan Pacific Exposition, you know, to the Tilden era and to this this uh, partnership, and then now the the foundation, which is doing a wonderful job. And, and the important thing is it's opening it to the public. This is not no longer, you know, a private garden. It is open for the community to enjoy, and it is uh, now a national trust for historic preservation premier destination site. Oh my. We're very proud of that, yeah. Now, through the uh, centennial celebrations uh, this year and next year, are any of the other descendants of previous owners going to be involved at all? Oh, yes. Well, last year, Peter Stein, the uh, grandson of Isabel Stein, he, um, you know, came to, uh, to help us with the history he donated his family albums to Hakone Foundation, which show, you know, the images from the Pan Pacific Exposition, pictures of Isabel Stein and the and his father, and his father John Stein and his two aunts um, at the Pan Pacific Expo. They were children. This is the grandson of Isabel, um, Peter Stein who has shared some of this history with us and showed us the diary of his, his father who went with his mother, um, you know, Isabel, to Japan. You know, he, he showed it to us and, and we created a video called um, A Century of uh, Beauty and Endurance. And he's interviewed there and showing the diary and also showing some pictures from the album. The, the Tilden descendants have given us photographs also, and they, they're in this video. And then I'm interviewed, and then I have photographs also in, of uh, the partnership. And so, and then early members of the foundation. So we're, we've recorded this history. But I think that, that oral history has really uh, been very, very important because it wasn't, a lot of this history was not written down. We really needed descendant voices tell the story of Hakone Gardens. To learn more about Hakone Estate and Gardens, 
or to join in the centennial celebrations or experience the peace and harmony that Hakone offers, visit Hakone.com or the show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link. Destination Spotlight, Andrea Jimenez shines a light on the Dominican Republic from the Adventure Travel Show. The Dominican Republic is the second largest island of the Caribbean, of which we share half the island with Haiti. To travel to the Dominican Republic, no visa required unless you are non-citizen or if you do not have a green card. So everyone with a green card or U.S. Um, citizen do not require a visa to travel to the Dominican Republic, but yes, a tourist card of which you purchase upon your arrival at the airport for 10 U.S. dollars in cash per person. Go to our website, www.godominicanrepublic.com, and you will find more entry information there with just a list of all the countries that do not require or visa to enter the Dominican Republic. The Dominican Republic is not only about beach and hotels. We have a lot to offer. We have baseball for those baseball um, lovers. We have carnival that is going on right now in every city, in all major cities of the Dominican Republic. We have ecotourism, extreme sports for those that love sports as well. We have adventure, a lot of adventure. We have the tobacco tour. We have the cocoa tour, the coffee tour, which is amazing that you go from zero to where how you get the coffee in your table. Do you know about the cultural influences on the island and where they come from? We have a bit of everything. I don't know if people know actually that we took in a lot of Jewish refugees. So we actually have a Jewish museum in Puerto Plata where everybody can go. It's open to the public. They could go and learn more on how they got there, where they came from, and where they are, actually. We have a Chinatown in Santo Domingo, exact, just as here is in Washington and in New York. We have a Chinatown. It's beautiful. It was remodeled, uh, remodeled like three years ago. We have a lot of Italians, a lot of Germans, Canadians as well living in the Dominican Republic. A lot of people retire and actually go down to the Dominican Republic, not only to the service area, but to the cities of Santo Domingo as well. And in Samana. What do you love most about the Dominican Republic? I love everything. It's just everything about my country, especially the people. They're such loving people. They take you in a family. Travel magazines and publications dedicated to wine enthusiasts share their picks for the best wine travel destinations in the coming year. But what about other guilty pleasures, like chocolate? Doreen Pengrass has traveled the globe in search of the best chocolate 
and she's immersed herself in a world of chocolate tastings and events. We asked Doreen why she felt compelled to share her chocolate adventures on her website, Chocolatour. Well, it all started back in 2009. I, I visited the Dominican Republic and had been to where they were growing cacao, and I saw it and, it, it, you know, uh, got inspired by it, but I didn't really make much of it. And later that year, I thought, you know, I'm going to write a book about chocolate and chocolate travel because there's been lots of books written about wine travel and other various niches for uh, small group travel, but nobody's ever done a book about chocolate travel. So um, in the fall of '09, I went to Europe, and that's, of course, where modern-day chocolate has been developed, and, and, and everybody thinks of Europe when they think of fine chocolate. So I went to the primary countries of Belgium, France, and Switzerland, and, uh, you know, learned about chocolate there. And then the next year, I went to uh, Spain, Italy, and Holland, and the next year to England, you know, to see all about how they're making chocolate. And once I did my research on those seven countries. Then I went back to the growing regions and uh, visited South America and uh, some areas in the Caribbean so that I could publish the first volume of the book, which was called Chocolatour, A Quest for the World's Best Chocolate. Is there such a thing as the world's best chocolate? And did Doreen discover it? That's a misnomer. I, 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 I kind of knew when I called it that, that there was no such thing. Uh, but just as with wine, you know, you can ask anybody what's the best wine and people that love wine, like I do, will have many favorites. And that's the way I feel about chocolate. I have many, many favorites of chocolate because each chocolate maker does something better than the next guy. Everybody makes the chocolate slightly different. Some chocolate makers actually work with the cocoa or cacao beans and others, chocolatiers, they work with couverture, which is chocolate that's actually been already created by a large uh, company usually and then sent to the small chocolate shops for them to put their own personal spin and flavorings into the chocolate. Where did your love of chocolate emanate from? I've always loved chocolate. I mean, as a growing up, you know, one thing I totally loved was turtles, you know, chocolate turtles, because I love the flavor of caramel with chocolate and nuts. Well, now they make, uh, you know, salted caramels, and I absolutely love that. So the um, artisanal version of turtles is way better than the commercial version, and uh, you kind of become a chocolate snob just as you do with wine once you start um, drinking good wine, it's hard to go back to the inexpensive stuff, and it's the same with chocolate. What have you learned about chocolate that's been a surprise to you? Well, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is how many health benefits chocolate actually has. But, of course, when I say chocolate, I'm meaning either by eating the pure uh, cocoa nibs, which are uh, crushed cocoa beans, or eating pure dark chocolate that is 70% higher or higher in a cocoa content. Um, and if you eat that kind of pure dark chocolate, it has so many health benefits that um, they truly is what they used to call the food of the gods because uh, pure dark chocolate has more antioxidants in it and more flavanols than any other power food on the planet. And that includes blueberries, broccoli, all the things that we always thought were the best power foods cocoa in its pure form cacao is the number one Doreen tells us as with any food chocolate can be paired nicely with wine and other beverages I um, kind of discovered that accidentally on my own when I when I first started eating good quality chocolate I, I like lint chocolate you know when you're trying to watch your budget lint uh, chocolate is really a great brand because it's inexpensive and it's good good quality. And I like their sea salt uh, chocolate bar. And it's, uh, you know, a dark chocolate, very tasty. And I love Malbec wine, which is, of course, from Argentina, and it's a really full-bodied red. And if you match those two together, it's just like a match made in heaven. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are speaking to travel writer and publisher of Chocolatour, Doreen Pengrass, about her quest to find the world's best chocolate. So once I discovered that pairing, then I started experimenting with different kinds of chocolate and pairing it with different kinds of wine and other liquors, like chocolate pairs quite well with um, a dark beer, uh, particularly like a porter beer or a Guinness like stout, really goes well with the dark chocolate. And then if you're having uh, a milk chocolate, 
Um, it, it goes better with like a buttery Chardonnay or um, a, a sparkling white uh, goes nicely with milk chocolate. And, uh, and of course, if you're having white chocolate. According to Doreen, the concept of chocolate travel and tourism is starting to emerge. Slowly, the idea of, uh, of people traveling for chocolate is catching on. I kind of like to think of myself as a trailblazer in that respect because when I started this uh, six and a half years ago, um, nobody was really talking too much about chocolate travel or chocolate tourism or what I like to call chocolate tourism. Um, it was not really, I mean, people would eat chocolate if they went to places like Belgium and Switzerland, but they didn't deliberately plan trips for the purpose of discovering chocolate. But now, there are, um, there, you kind of have to organize it yourself. I'm trying very hard to find the right partner to uh, 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 partner with to, to do chocolate tours. Um, but I haven't quite found that right partner yet, but I'm still looking. But I, I'm eager to take chocolate lovers around the world. Uh, and we have uh, attempted to do that in the past, but most of the countries that grow cocoa um, are located 20 degrees north or south of the equator. So you're going pretty much to an equatorial location, uh, either South America, Central America, the Caribbean, um, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, they're growing cocoa. Mexico does grow quite a bit of cocoa. And now even Hawaii is growing cocoa. Um, they've only been doing it for about 10 or 12 years, but they're actually growing some very tasty cocoa. So if people go to the Hawaiian Islands, they will find that there are chocolate festivals there. There are tours of chocolate uh, companies and also of the cocoa farms. What has been your favorite or most surprising chocolate chocolate travel experience? Oh, wow. I have so very many, but I guess if I had to pick one, it would be uh, in Puerto Viejo, Costa Rica. I went there to attend the chocolate festival. I was asked to be a judge there, and I discovered that they had a spa, a spa called the Pure Jungle Spa, and they actually take locally grown cocoa. They make it into a warm, soft paste, they slather your body in it. This is at the spa. And then they wrap you in banana leaves and let you cook for an hour. And then um, you, you wash it all off in an outdoor jungle shower. And it's just the most fabulous experience I have ever had with chocolate so far. And, of course, people can learn more about some of the chocolate festivals around the world from your website, chocolatetour.net. Absolutely. If they go to chocolatour.net, I've got a lot of information that I've gleaned over the past six years. From I've now done 16 countries for chocolate, and so I've got lots of posts up there about different countries, about different chocolate, about different chocolate experience, experiences like the chocolate spas. There's actually a lot of spas that offer chocolate wraps and body treatments, so that's really something I encourage people to seek out. It's a lot of fun. To read more about Doreen's world of chocolate or to learn about her book, Chocolatour, a quest to discover the world's best chocolate, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for a link to the Chocolatour website. Doreen's book is also available on Amazon, and we have a direct link to the store page on our website.
You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Coming up, we will enjoy our own wine pairings with California's sustainable wines. Allison Jordan from the Wine Institute will tell us how California wine growers are combining sustainable practices with wildlife conservation. Then we will get a glimpse into the history and adventures that await visitors in Cabo San Lucas. Finally, Lori Lansbury from the Greater Lansing Convention and Visitors Bureau will share why Michigan State Capitol is much more than just a college town. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, we invite you to visit our website, worldfootprints.com, where you can peruse our library of radio shows, articles, and more. You can also find links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. California has been a leader in developing and implementing sustainable initiatives in a number of industries, but most prominently in wine growing practices. Allison Jordan with California's Wine Institute takes us on an excursion through the state's famous winemaking regions and offers the backstory behind their earth-friendly practices. Well, we've had the California Sustainable Wine Growing Program ongoing now for about 14 years, and the participation levels just continue to grow. I would say that California really leads the way in sustainable wine growing. We have more than 80% of our wine case production um, that are participating and uh, many, many vineyards and wineries, over 2,000 participants. What was the inspiration behind the sustainable growth initiatives back in the day? It really did start with the environmental stewardship ethic that's just a natural within our industry. Of course, vintners and growers often live on or near their land, and they're welcoming visitors to their wine-growing regions around the state. And so it really just was a natural fit for them to really look at best practices. And there were a couple of initiatives already happening in different wine regions throughout the state. So we pulled together all of those best practices, including wildlife habitat preservation and conservation, and put it together in something we call the California Code of Sustainable Wine Growing. And, of course, now there's more and more interest, so it's helping not only in just sort of that personal satisfaction and, and the way that we do business, but also as more and more consumers and retailers and others are interested, it's a way for us to be able to communicate. And with the addition of a third-party certification program, we can now verify those sustainable practices. How did the vineyards take to the idea of being in the wildlife habitat conservation arena? You know, again, I think that just came very naturally. Often this is a a very generational business, so often people are thinking about that long-term vitality of their businesses and what they want to pass on to future generations. And, of course, healthy soil and air quality and a beautiful landscape and all of those things not only are things that they want to hand down to their children and their grandchildren, but also that really aids in creating a great quality wine grape and wine. So ultimately, at the end of the day, we're in a business where we're about producing that high-quality grapes and wine. What have you been able to see in terms of species protected? What's your data showing you there? I know a number of wineries work with Audubon and other other groups to really start tracking that biodiversity. Um, So there are examples of that, but we also look at practices statewide. And so a couple of just some specific examples about how practices that benefit wildlife habitat are being adopted. Um, 83% of growers that are participating in our program maintain nesting habitats. And that's the idea of putting those nesting boxes around their vineyards to attract birds and raptors that really help naturally manage pests. Um, and if you look at the acreage, that represents about 96% of the assessed acres. And all of this information we have in our 2015 sustainability report, so it's all very publicly available. Another example is that 91% of growers allow resident or native vegetation to grow around fence lines and and ditch banks. So that has a very positive impact both in terms of habitat, but also protecting local water bodies by capturing and treating the runoff of sediment and other inputs. And again, that's a large number of acres that are participating. 98% of all of the assessed acres are using that practice. You also have something called the Green Corridors that some vineyards have designed in order to accommodate wildlife 
Talk a little bit about that. A lot of our vineyards, they don't grow grapes on all of their properties. So our program deals not only with the vineyards and how those are managed, and of course, soil management and pest management, water management, all of those things can really aid in creating natural wildlife habitat and, and protecting biodiversity, but they're also looking at that broader landscape, so riparian habitats and oak woodlands and others. So just a couple of examples, Ian J. Gallo, the Gallo family, has a give-back program. So for every acre that they develop, they contribute one acre of land for habitat restoration, so things like preserving wildlife and establishing natural grasses, oak groves, wetlands. So those are, that's one example. Fetzer in Mendocino County is another one that they only have vineyards on roughly 55%, so 45% of their property is maintained for oak woodlands and riparian habitat. The list goes on. There are so many that are really dedicating a lot of their land to this whole idea of wildlife conservation. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are talking to Allison Jordan and learning why California is leading the world in sustainable wine growing and production practices. A lot of times when we hear California and nature, it's been wildfires, it's been water conservation issues. How is the sustainability program working in spite of some of those natural challenges? The real interesting thing about sustainability is that it's so comprehensive. So our program deals with energy and water conservation and air and water quality and environmentally preferable purchasing. So what the things that you're bringing onto your property and using in the wine grape growing and winemaking process, also your neighbors and employees and your community. It's so comprehensive that I think it gives people a chance to step back and look at their whole operation and make sure that they're being as efficient as they can be, but also really building in that adaptability and recognizing some of those risks that are inherent in any sort of agricultural program. And again, there are so many sustainable practices that are really well suited to address those types of issues. Now, are all your California winemakers or vineyards involved in these sustainable initiatives? We currently have about 2,000 participants in the program, but the wineries represent about 80% of all of California wine, so pretty significant participation, and it's about 70% of our wine grape acreage. And then in terms of certification, we now have wineries that make over 64% of California wine that are certified California sustainable wine growing. So it is very widely adopted, and through our sustainability report and measuring those practices, we can also show how widely adopted those practices are. Do you have a list of all of the participating uh, vineyards in case, you know, a listener is interested in purchasing wine in order to support perhaps like Gallo's uh, Green Corridor or other initiatives like that? We have a list of all of our participating vineyards and wineries as well as those that are certified on our website, www.sustainablewinegrowing.org. And there's also a great resource on discovercaliforniawines.com where we have a whole sustainable wine growing section. It's very interactive. You can learn about all of the definitions of sustainability, some of the different areas. And if you want, you can even do an online ambassadors course. It's a free one-hour online course And you can get a certificate at the end that says that you're a California Sustainable Wine Growing Ambassador if you are able to pass the quiz at the end. So lots of great ways to get involved. We also have Down to Earth Month in April where wineries and vineyards all over the state are offering different types of experiences. In some cases, a whole wine region like in Rodi, the Central Coast, Mendocino, Napa, Livermore. They have lots of things that are happening all over their regions. And then there are also fun things like winemaker walks. So at Cooper Garrett and Santa Cruz Mountains, you can go for a walk with a winemaker and really learn a lot about sustainable wine growing as you're walking through. There's also a spring vineyard hike at Jordan Winery in Napa. So again, if you go to discovercaliforniawines.com, you can learn about Down to Earth Month and all of the fun activities that are happening throughout the state. And what about throughout the year? And we also have events that are happening throughout the year on discovercaliforniawines.com. And often now you're really seeing that as you visit tasting rooms or doing vineyard or winery tours, a lot of those winemakers and growers are really talking about their sustainable practices. It's a great way to sort of 
have that consumer producer interface where they can ask questions and learn a lot about not only the agricultural side, but also the winemaking side and how we're looking at things like water and energy and soil management and things that really matter from an environmental standpoint. To learn more about California Sustainable Wines and to see which vineyards are paying it forward, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for relevant links. In this Destination Spotlight, we learn what Cabo San Lucas has to offer from the Adventure Travel Show. Cabo is located in the Baja Peninsula of Mexico, which is amazing because we actually have two converging oceans. The Sea of Cortez, which is warm and turquoise color, and the other side, which is the Pacific Ocean. It's a little more colder, it's a little more wild, but it's a combination of both oceans. Actually, the landmark in Cabo San Lucas is the arch, the rock formation, which is there. We have the Lover's Beach on one side, which is in the calm side, and then the Divorce Beach, which is in the wild side, which is amazing, right? It's kind of like a combination of both, like the, the, the feeling of it. And, and that place, it had the history, it goes back to the, uh, with the Buccaneer, uh, Buccaneers were hiding from French, all the patrols were actually hiding in that Bay Area. The, on the, on the lover's side, because it's like a bay, and the, usually the, the pirates were hiding in that side because the French were looking out for them on the Pacific side. There's actually a, a hill, we, we have mountains there, which gives a lot of beauty around it, it's a desert. And one of the mountains there is called the El Vigia, which is the watcher. That's where the pirates were on the top watching for the French coming and hiding, which is amazing. They, they were hiding a lot of stuff in there, so some caves in there as well. And also, well, let me tell you, the, the food in there is amazing. They will have some of the best chefs in restaurants in Mexico. And, of course, uh, the gastronomy goes all the way from Mediterranean to Mexican and French. Like, you can find everything you want in there. The area is really, really small. It's a small town, which is, which is good because you can have a relaxing vacation while you're combining with locals. You're combining with... Uh, Luxury, uh, luxury resorts, but also a small resort with the boutique resort, which offers you more of the authentic Mexican style. There's a place called Playa Grande, which is uh, built in a uh, hacienda style. So many other, other resorts actually take that because we want people to come and feel like they're actually in Mexico, enjoying the desert, away from everything. And uh, that's what I think makes Cabo special. And also, let me tell you that it's, it's called the Aquarium of the World. Because if you like uh, eco-tours, like scuba diving, and snorkeling, you can actually go swimming, watch um, an amazing, I don't know, it's like being in space and watch all these beautiful fishes and whales we're watching. You can actually stay on, stay on the beach and see uh, some of the whales just jumping. Uh, no, I don't know. It's a lot. It's beautiful. It's like a combination of nature and and vacation. Lansing, Michigan has blossomed into a dynamic cultural center, and the city has grown far beyond the small plot of land that European explorer Hugh Hewer discovered while canoeing down the Grand River in 1790. Even hometown girls like Tanya discover something new with each visit home. People know of Lansing, Michigan because of the Michigan State Spartans mostly, but there's more to Lansing than just a university town. Oh my goodness, that's true. Of course, we love our Spartans in East Lansing at Michigan State University. We are the state capital. We are also home to uh, numerous museums right downtown Lansing. And we're the only, here's a little historical fact, we're the only state in the nation whose county seat is not located in the same place as the Capitol building. Our capital is in Lansing in Ingham County, but our county seat for Ingham is in Mason. So just an odd, hmm. odd little fact, fun fact for you for today. Well, so besides that lovely little fun fact, and that's certainly something I didn't know, what else distinguishes Lansing from, say, other state capitals in the nation? Our downtown is one of the most walkable downtowns and great for visitors to come visit. The Michigan Historical Museum, 
is right downtown. That's the state archives that are there, and the Library of Michigan are located there. There's a visitor center inside our Supreme Court building, uh, a learning center there, which is, I think is only one of a handful in the nation where visitors can actually go in there and learn. And it's basically for students, but they can learn the judicial system, pretend they're sitting in a courtroom, learn if it's lawful for your principal to check out your locker. So very interesting things for kids to learn there, very hands-on. When I think about Lansing and, and what's special about it, it is a small city. Tanya once said town, and I said, no, it's a, it's a city, and it actually <laughs> blends a lot of different things that I think reflect Michigan. It is the capital. It's a yeah. university town, and it's also a place where they still make things, too. And so uh-huh. that makes Lansing different than a lot of these other state capitals. That is, we are, we're kind of a three, three-legged stool, you know. It's the state capital, it's MSU, and it's General Motors. We are a big automotive town and have been since the early 1900s. Oldsmobile was founded here. Ari Olds, Ransom Eli Olds, was a big maker and shaker in Lansing. And, yes, we're home to actually two state-of-the-art General Motors Manufacturing Assembly Plants. We do the Cadillac CTS right downtown Lansing. They've also added the Chevy Camaro, which is kind of fun, but that's right downtown. And then in Delta Township, just a few miles away, they do a lot of the crossovers, the GMC Acadia and those type of cars. So do they allow tours, though, factory tours? They do not anymore. They used to do that back in the day. I think security reasons, and they're just so busy. And you mentioned the Ariold uh, Transportation Museum. Does that museum house some of the current cars that are coming off the line? It's more older cars. It's more historic. It really is a tribute to Ransom Olds. But they've got everything from, you know, you'll remember the Olds Toronados and just some really classic, the REO Speedwagon mm-hmm. from Rio. Rio was a manufacturing, car manufacturing and truck manufacturing facility right here in Lansing. So Rio's, Oldsmobiles, they've got a great museum. Now, from what I remember, Lansing State Capitol has a very interesting architectural history. They did a restoration, geez, I think it's been 20 years now that they did uh, just a multi-million dollar restoration there. And this is absolutely a beautiful Victorian gem. This has over nine acres of hand-painted surfaces inside the State Capitol building. Those are things because when the State Capitol was built, it was shortly after the Civil War. Michigan had spent a lot of money on that, but they needed a tribute to the the veterans coming home. They took inexpensive material and faux painted it to look very expensive. Their Michigan pine on the wainscoting is all painted to look like imported English walnut. And the columns are all plaster, but they're painted to look like marble and open to the public six days a week, and the tours run every half hour. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we are talking to Lori Lansbury about the countless activities, attractions, and events Lansing, Michigan has to offer to kids of all ages. Within that walking just the five blocks, five minutes, five attractions, you can not only do the State Capitol and the Michigan Historical Museum, which the kids love because you can walk through a replica of a copper mine. There's the Michigan Historical Museum is three floors of Michigan history, so the kids do love that. The adults do too. There's a nice little room that's like a one-room schoolhouse that you can kind of go in. But also we've got the Lansing Lugnuts right downtown, which is our minor league ball team. That's a family-friendly, fun activity to do. Also the Impression 5 Science Center, which is a great hands-on Science Center. You don't have to be a kid to go there to love blowing bubbles. 
and learning, <laughs> like playing on the giant light bright they've got. It's, you know, I have just as much fun as my granddaughter does. <laughs> and also, I wanted to ask you about the arts district. From what I remember, I thought there was uh, on the north side of town a, a great emerging arts district. There is a wonderful new renaissance area on the north side of the downtown Lansing area. They call it Old Town, and it's right along the Lansing River Trail that connects the, you know, North Lansing to the downtown area. Fun boutiques, art galleries, great restaurants. It really is, and they have got, they do some great festivals in the summer months. And speaking of trails, you have something called the Makers and Shakers Trail. What is that? (laughs) Well, that's not the river trail that you can bike and hike and (laughs) walk on. That is our artisan wine, beer, and spirits trail that we've got in Lansing. And I know when you've come up, you've probably noticed that Michigan is just ripe with craft beer. We live it and love it. They like Bells and founders and you know you've heard the craft beer names they're here in Michigan and Lansing has kind of followed that lead we've got not only craft beer small batch makers Lansing Brewing Company has been resurrected that was something that got shut down during prohibition and Lansing Brewing Company is back in business and uh, manufacturing a fabulous amber cream ale if you know our mayor Virg Bonero, who has been to your capital. <laughs> we have an angry mayor IPA that, um, <laughs> oh my, <laughs> that he endorses wholeheartedly. The beer scene is great. We've got distillery for gin, capital gin, fat five whiskey, and Hugh Vodka is right down here next to the ballpark, the distillery. So we've got a number, I think 14 in total, boutique wineries breweries and distilleries in the area. Wow, it sounds like just a giant pub crawl. (laughs) (laughs) You could do that, yes. (laughs) Now, what do you think would surprise most visitors about Lansing? I think they'll be surprised that there's so many things to do. And it is, like you said, it's got the big city amenities and the small town hospitality and charm, you know, and it just three miles down the road from Michigan State University. MSU has that fabulous Broad Museum, the Modern Art Museum. There's just so much to see and do. I'll tell you one of the things that surprised me is all the famous people who are from Lansing. Everyone knows of Magic Johnson. Of course. Uh, of course. <laughs> and, um, but Steven Seagal and Burt Reynolds, Oh, do you love the Burt Burt Reynolds? Yes, finally admitted it. (laughs) (laughs) There was a big controversy about that for a while, I think. Oh, shame (laughs) on him. Uh, But what really surprised me was Harry Smith. Yes. I didn't. I never knew that about Harry, but there is something about him, and I should have known just because of his aura. I'm not on the list yet, but hopefully one day, one day, one day, one day you'll day. be there. <laughs> but also, you know, Malcolm X grew up in Lansing, and there's a historical marker for his homestead. There is. He is on Vincent Court, right? off of Martin Luther King Jr. roads. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you love about Lansing? I think I like the people the best. And, you know, Tanya, I was born and raised in Canada and kind of made my way around here. And it's been 20 years now that I've been, I've made Michigan my home. But I think it's the hospitality of the people. I think they're kind and they're humble and they're hard workers. They don't take anything for granted, and I really think it's this sense of community here. To learn more about Lansing, Michigan, or to plan your trip to Michigan's capital city, visit lansing.org or the show page at worldfootprints.com for relevant links. It's 
nice to see the commitment in preservation that people have had over the years at uh, Coney and even in uh, Lansing. My grandfather's record shop and people would come from miles from cities away, Detroit, Grand Rapids, to shop at my grandfather's record shop, Johnny Johnson's record shop. And I was quite a popular kid growing up in Lansing because of that, but the building is still there. As old as it is, surrounding buildings around my grandfather's record shop have disappeared. But looking at Hakoni even, three different families who have owned the uh, estate and gardens committed to keeping the Japanese designs and the mission and ambiance of the estate and gardens uh, in its original form, expanding it. But I'm grateful that at least they had the foresight and commitment to keeping the gardens in its original uh, form, you know, particularly now because when we look around, we hear about World Heritage Sites being dis- destroyed, purposely destroyed by war and what have you. And to know that even Hakone survived World War II and in the internment that a lot of Japanese-American citizens experienced, uh, to know that that gardens actually survived that uh, says a lot about this country. Well, when we think about what ties this show together, it's a commitment to protecting the natural environment and the built environment. And uh, we we see that with Lansing and the preservation of the capital as well, uh, truly one of the uh, great capital buildings in America. And we also see that, too, in our interview with Allison with respect to sustainable practices in wine culture. And it's just nice to see that uh, the environment and protecting heritage is first and foremost here. And indeed, and uh, certainly the pairing, you know, we talked about wine pairings with chocolate, and I love that conversation and just Doreen's affirmation that chocolate is good for the heart, uh, particularly dark chocolate. But just you know, seeing that pairing and then looking at what the uh, California Wine Institute and the vineyards are doing to protect our natural treasures, uh, you know, our wildlife, uh, from the green corridors uh, to nest buildings and, and what have you. Speaking of chocolate, I, I noticed here that right after Doreen mentioned her favorite chocolate, and we've eaten a lot of lint chocolate, or at least I have, you actually went to the store, bless you, and bought me two bars of the sea salt chocolate, which uh, we both have enjoyed. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And it's actually great chocolate, just as Doreen said. And one of the things that I liked about her focus with Chocolatour is chocolate spa experiences. And, and she spoke about that. And you had your own to speak of as well. Yes, I remember this lovely man, the one I'm sitting next to right now, I believe, um, purchased a, uh, a weekend for me at uh, Hershey. And I had a spa weekend, and um, I thought that was just the most indulgent and delightful thing that you could have done for me for Valentine's a few years ago. And how appropriate, Valentine's, chocolate, those things go together. Uh, But I wasn't expecting, you know, the experience that I had. It was very uh, decadent, it was very... um, indulgent and I loved it. Uh, it was my chocolate lover's uh, weekend with you. And you smelled for chocolate for weeks, I think. <laughs> I did. Even the, But I mean, how could you not help but smell like chocolate? The toilets smelled like chocolate. The, the, the bathrooms, rather, smelled like chocolate. And, um, and that was just, it was a wonderful, the sheets in the hotel smelled like chocolate. Everything smelled like chocolate. A Moorish proverb says that he who does not travel does not know the value of men. 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us again. We've had a great time with you talking about some of our favorite things. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing another amazing journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.